0: and welcome back to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Today, we continue our conversation with two very interesting people from the Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin, Texas. As noted last time, the center has a reputation as a source for information about plants and not just wildflowers, but all kinds of flowers, trees, and shrubs. In addition, its mission goes beyond plants into designing and maintaining sustainable ecosystems. You may wonder what exactly is a sustainable landscape, or an ecosystem, for that matter. Actually, your own backyard is an ecosystem in which a community of organisms, including you, as well as all the other animals and the plants and the insects, interact with each other and with the environment. We began our conversation with Jonathan Garner and Michelle Bright last time talking about what exactly a sustainable ecosystem is and why they're important. Jonathan Garner is program coordinator at the Sustainable Sites Initiative, and Michelle Bright is an environmental designer with ecosystem design groups. Both these groups are projects of the Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center. These individuals work with governments, builders, and other individuals in big cities, small towns, and all the places in between. Their goal is to create sustainable ecosystems that are designed to work with nature. As we know, water is a very precious resource that is necessary for life. But water supplies are threatened by a growing population and by all the many ways in which we humans waste water For example, by taking long showers, letting the water run while brushing teeth or washing dishes, and by watering lawns. Benjamin Franklin is often quoted as saying, when the well is dry, we know the worth of water. But do we really want to get to the dry well before doing something? Probably not, which is why water should be a major consideration in the design of every ecosystem. Michelle Bright says water was an overriding concern in the design of the George W. Bush Presidential Center in Dallas, Texas. The
1: challenge was designing an ecosystem that uses water efficiently. Another project we worked on was in Dallas, Texas. It, um, it was uh, the landscape about 15 acres around the George W. Bush Presidential Center. And we worked with a design team there Led by um, Michael Van Valkenburgh Associates, and that, that had very uh, very lofty goals for an urban setting. This is a it was a very urban site. It was bounded by the south and the east by an eight lane highway on both sides, um, and then to the north by a parking lot and to the west by housing for student housing because um, this is on the SMU property, the um, Southern Methodist University. And so there, the goals were were to create habitat, number one, to increase biodiversity, and to, um, to use less irrigation and water on the landscape itself. And uh, so they actually installed a lot of native turf turf grass. They did about eight acres of of turf, native turf. They did about six acres of tall grass prairie and mid grass prairie and savanna systems. And they looked around to Texas ecosystems, um, and they found and they actually have on site like a wet prairie, they have tall grass prairie, they have savanna. Um, Some of these suite of plants that they've used that are very adapted to the site, so take less water, uh, um, they've used suites of 60-plus species. They also have um, this really great idea to start seeding in more diversity into these areas. So they're going to be going to other prairies where they will get permission to harvest some seed and bring to the site and increase the diversity even higher. But when it comes to water, this was a big thing for them. Uh, They had to try, they were also trying to meet LEED standards for uh, site requirements for water use. So they were trying to reduce the amount of irrigation used on the landscape from potable water by 50%. Um, So what they did is they started collecting all the rainwater from the um, parking lot from the roof, and it goes through a series of rain gardens, a bioswale, and then it ends up in this wet prairie and it infiltrates down into the ground. These are things a homeowner can do. They can think about, and one of the things I suggest is really going outside when it rains, put on a rain jacket and start looking around your property. Where does the water go? Can you capture it? If you can't capture it in a cistern, could you direct it towards plants? Um, could you create a little depression as long as it doesn't become an obstacle for your house to hold it? Um, and then when it comes to plant material, look to what uh, regionally grows here. Um, that's a real key. And if you want habitat, if you use like native understory plants and a complex palette of plants, you'll get more insects. And more insects means more. Bird life It's just a matter of creating it. Um, they will the winged creatures will come. <laughs> uh, let's talk specifically about regenerative design. Sure. So our team goes about regenerative design in a more based off of what we call ecological design. And that holistically takes into account three main things. It takes in into account the physical um, environmental components at the site. That means your soils, understanding your soils, understanding your plants, the animals that are there, and even some of the hard structures or what's surrounding the site. Um, Secondly, we start looking at the ecological mechanics of those things. So how do they interact? How is or how do we want the soils to be? Um, How do we want the plants to interact and regenerate over time. What type of um, bird species could potentially come to this area? What are we close to? Um, And then finally, and actually most importantly to us, is really to think about how humans and we interact with those systems. Because we like to think of our involvement in in everything that happens on this earth as a huge part of it. We're not separate from nature, we're part of nature. And so thinking of us um, in, that terms, in those terms is really important. Now for a project, we will think of all three of those things holistically, but also make goals. And those we sometimes call performance goals. How do we want, what do we want to actually happen at the site? And then we, we make an active effort to, to try to make those happen.
2: I think a lot of times it's landscapes are seen as this sort of a amenity. Maybe it's the icing on a cake, you know, so to speak. And so we don't necessarily look to landscapes as something that's functioning on a daily um, pattern or what that performance is. So when we talk about the high performance of landscapes, we're, we're really looking at aspects that we sort of are familiar with now in terms of high-performance buildings or, or high-performance cars, you know. And so, as Michelle was mentioning, when we look at the relationship between soil and plants and insect life and human use of the site, we're looking at how all these factors function together as one ecosystem and then what the performance of those functions is doing over time. And so, in terms of regenerative design, it's looking at all those functions, how that performance uh, is is tracked, and then how that all becomes one healthy ecosystem as it regenerates itself over a period of time. Obviously, here in Central Texas, water is a major precious resource. It's something that uh, has almost caused wars, I think. Over, um, So we know that that's, a, that's an important value, and we want to encourage uh, projects and, and encourage professionals to to make note of how water it flows through the site and how water can be used on the site. And a lot of that comes down to um, understanding the vegetation uh, and the needs of that vegetation. We encourage use of appropriate or native plants so that um, just regardless of where you are in the region, that you understand that the plants you put in are using the amount of rainfall um, best and can handle those conditions. Um, We're also talking about the use of water in terms of irrigation. uh, It's estimated right now that about 30% of a family of four, an average family of four, their daily water use goes towards outdoor activities like watering the lawn or the garden. And that's a tremendous amount of water. And what's worse is that usually that water that's used is the same water that's treated to the same drinking quality uh, of our water. So we want to teach uh, professionals we want to teach uh, homeowners how to you know best strategies for how to capture the rain that falls from the sky this natural um, free resource that is abundant to all of us uh, how we can capture that and we can reuse it for irrigation so i'd like to use the example of maybe like a, a tree or a stream that may be lost to previous development okay so before the development happened that tree was alive and growing and providing habitat it was taking up uh, storm water is providing is turning carbon dioxide into oxygen for us to breathe but then when that is lost it gets cut down for development then that function of that tree goes away and the performance of the landscape uh, declines pretty rapidly so when we talk about regenerative design and and the way that that michelle and her team go out and assess the site they look at where have some of these functions been before and where can we regenerate these functions on the landscape again so that this performance of this landscape increases.
0: It's difficult to believe how far away many of us have gotten from this way of thinking about our environment. It makes such intuitive sense that different organisms and elements that inhabit or share the same space interact with each other and affect each other, and that when we start planning to build a house, an office building, a school, or anything else, that we take into account what was there before the bulldozers move in, and think about how we can preserve and protect important natural elements, and that we consider how rainwater naturally flows in a plot of land, and consider the function of existing trees and plants. Instead, we mostly flatten the landscape and then create unnatural outdoor spaces with large lawns and non-native plant species, that soak up huge quantities of water. Where am I going with this? To a precious water resource located in Wimberley, Texas. It's called the Blue Hole, and it's a gorgeous natural setting with a deep pool of water surrounded by trees and plants. Over the years, as Wimberley's population grew, so did the number of visitors to Blue Hole. A few years ago, it became clear that Blue Hole was slowly being destroyed by the large influx of visitors. It was, in fact, being loved to death. That's when a group called the Friends of Blue Hole, a private philanthropic organization, stepped in and began an effort to reclaim Blue Hole and to create a sustainable regional park, which is now owned and operated by the city of Wembley. Jonathan Garner of the Sustainable Sites Initiative was involved in that effort. Can we talk about a specific example of a public space that I believe you worked on, which is the Blue Hole Regional Park?
2: I'd love to talk about Blue Hole. Uh, located in Wimberley, I think a lot of people might be familiar with that. Uh, Blue Hole is one of those areas that uh, we talked about. You know, it kind of the function of it sort of became to begin to degrade, and that's a direct result of. Of the human use of the site. So many generations ago, Blue Hole was what it is. You know, it follows along the Cypress Creek and it's this nice, um, lush, shady, cool environment in, in, in summer and people love to go there. The problem is, is that area was, was beginning to be loved to death. A lot of people were there. There was a lot of misuse of the site because the traffic wasn't being directed where, you know, in a, in a different area. RVs were coming down and parking directly in the floodplain along the, the stream, the, the the edge of the creek there, and that caused a lot of problems. So what's great about Blue Hole is that it's really this, the way the park is now, it's this great example of how a group of similarly minded people can come together, set out some goals like Michelle was mentioning that their, their team does, and, and and move into a, a design of a landscape that will provide uh, a function, uh, to provide many functions, and then will continue to provide that function and perform the way it was designed over time. Um, do you how want to talk about how did
0: that? Yeah. How did that work? In other words, did was it a group that came to you and said we need help, or how does that work?
2: The team was made up of people from the city. Um, city administrators, but also citizens of the city of Wimberley. Uh, there was a team here from the Wildfire Center that was a part of that. And um, there was a um, design consultant that was also hired uh, to to provide sort of the direction of design, um, taking the input from the city and from the citizens and translating that into some design uh, strategies. Um, so when we talk about things like the floodplain where the RVs were Um, number one was to cut off access for any motorized vehicle to get down into the floodplain and then number two was to take all the compacted soils that were in the floodplain and restore those open that up provide some more breathing room in those soils so that in times of flood which Cypress Creek does in heavy rain those floodwaters can move over into the floodplain and that water can be held within the floodplain like it naturally wants to do so that rushing water doesn't move downstream and cause some catastrophic problems for areas further downstream. Uh, Another thing that we saw is that previously people were accessing the creek just through any point of entry that they wanted to. Um, That again compacted the edges of the creek bed and we begin to have a, a major loss of plant species along that. Now what that really means is that what's happening below the surface the fibrous roots of those plants that are um, naturally uh, able to work in those stream conditions they hold the soil and if you compact the soil to the where those plants can't grow anymore because the roots can't get down into the soil or because water can't infiltrate into the soil then we begin to lose those plant species which in turn causes us to lose the stream bank which opens up the the bank of the stream, and all that um, soil gets falls off and gets filtered down and, and flows down into the creek further down water and deposits somewhere else, causing a large buildup and then flooding in that. So it's cause and, and effect over and over and over and over.
0: Right. And those are things we don't even think about when we're walking along. The
2: right. Hmm. So the design team went in, they reestablished the bank, um, they opened up the soil again and, and planted... New plant species that are native to the area, and that can handle those uh, conditions, and then they only allow now three access points into the creek. One is a shallow end for kids, families. You know, it's real easy to kind of wade around in there. There's sort of a mid-deep level that um, I like to see the youngsters. They go and practice their rope swinging skills, and then a little bit further down, there's a, a deeper end that um, some of the bigger kids or adults like myself or Michelle we go down there and, and we really show off our rope swinging skills and take a big plunge into the deep cold waters during summertime or you know just lazily float around on a water tube um, just enjoying the, the nice uh, weather down there but on the larger scale there's a whole other 126 acres of the park that provide nature trails for people to walk and experience um, just kind of a A place of respite away from day-to-day life. Um, They can go in there and they can see what types of plant species are native to the area because there are a lot of those were uh, saved and protected. Um, There's also a a great model in how the, the facilities there are capturing rainwater and holding it in a cistern and reusing that water in irrigation so that the park itself is not dependent on water from the city to irrigate these plants and then another I think the last really great success story for Blue Hole is that like I said in the beginning um, as people sort of loved the park a little bit too much then they started to see a decline in visitation and with this new initiative to to redesign the park and, and to redevelop it in a better way then since the park reopened I think in 2012 correct me if I'm wrong there but within that first year of reopening, uh, they saw a 60% increase in visitation. And then the following year, that visitation doubled once again. So it's really important whenever we think about a landscape, it's not, you can't just put it in and then it's done. It has to be cared for and maintained over a long period of time. And with a park this size, that means it's, it costs quite a bit to keep a park like that maintained. But because visitation is so great, and people again are are loving this park more and more, then just park entry fees alone, it's generating enough revenue that the park itself can be maintained on on visitor fee on on entrance fees, and not have to be dependent on uh, a, a higher tax of property values for people in Wimberley.
0: Right. Yeah, I think what we found is that, in fact, there are so many people going that they. Uh, I believe they limit the number of people because, you know, they just can't handle it. Of one thing, there's no place to park, and then there's too many people. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, and that's going back to what they've learned from historic uses of the park, that too many people cause too many problems. And so we need to space that out a little bit and allow everybody a chance to enjoy the park, but do it only at the, you know, the carrying capacity of the park for a set amount of time.
0: That's an interesting term, caring capacity. <laughs> have you heard about green roofs? These are gardens that are constructed on roofs and have been installed on homes, but also on office and apartment buildings. You may wonder why people would do this, but there are very good reasons. All that concrete and asphalt in our cities and in suburban areas results in higher temperatures and what has been called the urban heat island phenomenon. Green space reduces heat, but in addition, green spaces soak up rain and help prevent stormwater runoff, and therefore reduces the possibility of flooding. Because of the effect green roofs have on the overall temperature, they reduce the amount of energy that is used to cool a building. I talked with Michelle Bright about green roofs and the benefits they can bring to an environment.
1: One of the research items we've been focused on here at the Wildflower Center is green roofs and specifically for arid conditions and climates like we are in. um, Because one of the main things we noticed right off with our research is that plants don't, they like water and they don't like getting completely heated, heated up all day long. And so that was the first thing we noticed really when we used more conventional growing media or soils is that the the plant material was dying or the roots wouldn't kind of grow out the way they properly should. Um, so we've been looking at the media, which is the soil, and then also the type and the kind of complexity of plants that are on the roofs themselves. And the reason we do this and um, in investigating this is this is... Green roofs can provide a lot of different things for an urban setting, but also for a homeowner. They can reduce your cost of um, utilities bills for heating um, and cooling, so they insulate. They can um, hold back and retain a little bit of stormwater, so keep the amount of flooding, and potentially um, they can hold back a little bit of water. They create a habitat spot as well. So you can actually have butterflies or birds visiting your roof. Um, And then another really great thing, not only do they insulate your house, but they can also cool, they can add to reducing the heat island effect. So essentially in urban areas, it gets warmer because we have more, um, we have more asphalt, we have more concrete, we have more buildings, and it just warms up. Um, So when you have a cooling, you have plant material that cools things down, you can actually reduce the heat island effect. So there's many great benefits from green roofs. We worked on a project in East Austin with a a residential owner that had a house where they wanted to install and have Blackland Prairie. And Blackland Prairie, if you guys aren't familiar with it, it is one of the eco region types we have here in texas it um, expands kind of right up the middle of texas uh, all the way up to the north parts of it and it's it's a very endangered kind of eco region there's not a lot of it left so this property owner actually wanted to have blackland prairie on his roof and uh, we did just that Uh, and almost within a month after it was installed he started seeing uh, uh, red red-shouldered hawks come back, he saw songbirds come back, um, and he saw a lot of different uh, lizards and amphibians enter back into the area, so uh, it's, it's been very successful for him. And it's also a way uh, to, if you have a small property, to actually put your garden on your roof. So he, he doesn't have a ton of room and, you know, he can he can get on his roof and do the, the sort of gardening that he enjoys. So it's a real win for him.
0: Now, is that, now that doesn't sound like something that the average person could do on their own, is it? Doesn't it require particular materials to build the
1: roof? It certainly does. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it, uh, it because the weight of a green roof can be a major major issue. Um, and you if you have a property now you would have to get it assessed to see if it can kind of hold that weight. But there are those items out there. It is very it is doable. Um, even if you can't do your whole roof doing a portion of your roof, we are also looking into ways to make the weight of roofs uh, a green roofs a little less by reducing the amount of media that is needed or soil that is needed up at the top. Um, We have here at the Wildflower Center a few different areas you can walk around to to see what a green roof may look like. Uh, The kiosk when you walk in is um, a really good example of this. It is a spectacular green roof that just changes over the seasons. Different flowers will come up and then disappear and then come up again and disappear. It's beautiful. But what's fabulous about that roof, it's about four to five inches depth of soil. So that's that is very thin. For a green roof that is pretty pretty thin um, shallow amount of soil Uh, and we also have installed about a year ago we put on a cafe green roof so now when you're going up to the tower um, you can walk and walk around a green roof there. It's still being installed so keep in mind it's not completely grown out or anything like that but you can see an example there and there I believe it's about five inches of depth of soil um, that's up there. And it's, a, it's actually a media that we are looking at and uh, kind of analyzing to see if it's something that uh, could be entered in, in you know, the industry, is, if it can be used by other, mm-hmm. on other project, projects. Um, so certainly, if, if it's something that, uh, as a homeowner you're interested in, come out and see what it looks like and then there's people around the community that can help you design uh, such a feature. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both
0: um, very much for all this wonderful information. Um, I've learned a lot. Uh, and I hope other people have too. Um, and I uh, just wanted to end by asking you to just uh, remind us of some of the workshops and things that we can learn from here at the Wildflower Center.
2: Sure. Again, those resources can be found on our website at wildflower.org.org, And um, you can find out some information there. Also, on our, if anyone's on Facebook or on Twitter, uh, search out the Wildflower Center and find us there. Like our page. Follow us on Twitter. I think we're posting about once, almost twice a day uh, nowadays. Okay. We also have a YouTube channel, I believe. And a Flickr account, Uh, again, just look for Lady Bird Johnson Wildflowers. So you're everywhere. We're sort of everywhere, and Uh, a lot of the information is out there.
0: That's all for this time. Listen again next time for Mothering Earth.